Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be the ultimate. Well, I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. It's Rick Wagner here, getting it right again here on Kansas EKGLN and uh, the Internet and uh, podcasting and whatever else may be. I want to hope that everybody is recovering from a very fun and thankful Thanksgiving. I know that uh, it's travel time for many people and not a lot of fun. Those of you traveling by air, of course, you know, it's not so much traveling by air anymore, is it? It's a, some brief trips in the air and then a long time touring various uh, airports and trying to find, in many cases, a comfortable place to sleep and uh, coming up with some way to use your baggage to comfort you on a series of lumpy seats that are welded together. Yeah, that that's the travel for some people. But anyway, thank you for joining us here today. I want to go on. Of course, everybody goes on about what they're thankful for this year. And uh, I, of course, always like to lead off with, I'm thankful for our audience. I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak to you. I'm thankful for having such dedicated listeners to the cause of conservatism who want to make things better for everyone by stopping progressives from making them worse for almost everyone, except for a few of them. And I, I just really feel as though the opportunity to speak like I do here is something that very few people get. And I've been doing it a fair amount of time now, so a lot of years. And I realize that that's an opportunity many people do not get. And I thank you for giving that to me. Anyway. So let's, uh, let's talk about a couple positive things here since it is, you know, essentially a holiday weekend. For many people, apparently it was a holiday week. When I was at work on Monday and Tuesday, uh, it was next to impossible to find anybody who was actually working, apparently, at least where I was calling. But a couple of interesting things and positive things happened this week. Don't worry. We all know there's plenty of negative ones to talk about, but we need to bring those to our attention too. The first, of course, and some of you may have heard about this, or many of you have, the Argentina elections, right? They elected a populist that's a big fan of Trump and the whole notion of freedom and a more open capitalist-type economy. His name was Javier Milei, M-I-L-E-I, and I know I'm mispronouncing it, but he is quite a character. You might want to look him up if you're uh, thinking about uh, who is this guy. I mean, he's he's not exactly your normal politician. Let's just put it that way. He has a very interesting background. He's very energetic. He's just different. And I think that's what they need. You know, Argentina is a country that should be very prosperous. It has a lot of natural resources. It has a highly skilled workforce. It's uh, been in business for a long time in terms of uh, being part of the global trades that are out there. And if you remember, in the 30s and 
well, up to the 40s when the war, and then after, Argentina was a place many people went. Some of you may go. I know some people go down there hunting, and there's a lot of uh, bird hunting down there, by the way, that uh, seems to to be uh, very popular. And it's a country that really should do well. And it's had times when it did well. Some of its most famous times, of course, was during the Perones. Now, the Perones, of course, were terrible. They practically bankrupted the country. They tried to buy everybody's election, just like we do here, causing all this tremendous inflation and so forth. And they've had, like a lot of South America and Latin America, they've had leftist governments in charge for a long time. And now they have someone that is very much the opposite of that. And he won fairly handily. So that's very encouraging. Now, we know that he's probably going to do the right thing because uh, the Mexican president, uh, let's see, Orberto, or Robert, oh gosh, I can't say his name, uh, Oberdon. I, I wrote it down here and I realized that I can't read my own writing. Uh, he uh, is already calling him a racist. Now, this is the same president of Mexico that calls our immigration policy racist and wanting to control uh, immigration racist and wanting to find out who's coming into our country is racist. So you know that if he's already calling the Argentinian new elected president, who's not even taking power yet, uh, a racist, you know, he's probably onto the right thing because this guy thinks everything that ensures people's borders allows you to identify people in your own country and control what's happened with immigration is all racist. Now, this, of course, beggars the point that Mexico, and we've talked about this before, their constitution discusses their not allowing immigration to somehow set them off kilter with their heritage. If you try and uh, go down to Mexico, or rather come up would be a good way to put it, from Guatemala or someplace like that, and decide to set up shop in Mexico, it's not going to go very well for you. Now, if you're on your way to the United States, yeah, that's probably okay. But on the other hand, you have to understand why they like the immigration uncontrolled like this. Last I looked, probably the second largest influx of funds in Mexico was coming from was coming from money that was wired to Mexico from the United States. So it's in their interest not to. Plus, and this is the thing that. I think is is very important. It's it's secondary only in the sense that it doesn't rise to the thought very often. But by allowing all of this immigration out of Mexico, and now we know tons of it isn't from Mex- even from Mexico anymore. It's coming up from uh, further in Latin America and South America, Venezuela, uh, Haitians are coming over. There's all sorts of uh, people from strange European countries that are mining, finding their way across as well as uh, places in the northern part of Africa. But nevertheless, for a long time, what we have done is we've allowed Mexico to have sort of a steam valve. In other words, if you made everybody stay there and live like this government is able to provide their standard of living, they might have a big change. But by allowing people to get out, people that are really fed up with the living conditions there and coming to America and then still sending money home to the rest of their family, they allow 
rather they create, like I say, a steam valve almost to let off uh, the steam that would build up in their own economy and amongst the people who might want change. So we've been allowing that. In other words, we've been feeding their lousy government down there and the corruptocrats that run it. Now, they don't even run a lot of it anymore. Some of the northern provinces, uh, not in good shape in terms of uh, keeping up with what's going on with the centralized government, since cartels seem to be running wild there. The local officials are often compromised. People that try and bring attention to that often find themselves uh, disappeared and then to reappear in a uh, room temperature uh, position, uh, no longer uh, able to uh, discuss the problems anymore. So, but that country has, has really prospered in the sense that we've financed it. We continue to give them money for things that they don't follow through on, as near as I can tell. And we allow people who are getting fed up with their inability to make money and prosper to come to the United States. And then they receive money from those people. What sense does that make? Of course, it doesn't make any sense from our point of view. It makes great sense from their point of view. You know, if you don't like it here and you got, you know, got yourself all, you know, wound up, why don't you go to America and, uh, you know, you can make money there one way or another and then send some of it back here, or come back certain times and leave the money. I mean, people have large families. They oftentimes leave them in Mexico and send money back to them. So it allows them to let the citizens who might otherwise change the government to have a way to make money, someplace to go and do things. It's, it's really a screwy way to do things if you want the technical way of doing it, and we seem Hello to be everybody. dedicated to stepping around. Rick Wagner here, getting a right here on KNZZ and KGLN and the Internet and a bunch of other places. Appreciate your listenership. Those of you on the podcast, appreciate that, too. I don't feel like I was as adroit as I could have been in the first segment. I I have to say, I mean, this is a holiday weekend. This is technically a holiday weekend after uh, Thanksgiving. I guess sort of people treat it like that, right? Uh, especially the po- folks that have been out on uh, Friday's Black Friday, which is, it's not, I don't think it's as bad as it used to be. I was reading a recent article about some of the kinds of trends we've had in the past for holiday shopping, like on Black Friday and so forth. And apparently one of the biggest ones that kicked off everything was, many of you may remember the Cabbage Patch Kids. Yeah. I think it was like in the 70s, 70s. No, no, it was later than that. It was... uh 80s, mid-80s, yeah, sorry, I'm not even getting it right. But that was where they really started seeing not just crowds and jostling and this and that, but started seeing violence because people were jammed in places, limited supply of these things. They wanted to get them for their kids. All day they've been shopping. No way to get anything online, of course. And temper started to flare. So that is one thing I think that, Online shopping has done is taken a little pressure off that. Although, as you know from yesterday, that a lot of retailers have been trying to get you back into the stores. Walmart, who has been trying to challenge Amazon for this whole online business, has, you know, has reverted back in my observation 
to trying to get people back in the stores a little bit more again. They started having more of these uh, sales that, you know, putting things out that are only available on Black Friday and then some of them at only certain times and so forth to kind of get people tuned in to the idea they needed to come down there. Personally, I would prefer not to be uh, ran over in the parking lot, <laughs> which seems to be something that I don't understand why doesn't happen more than it does, and uh, perhaps having your car backed into or backing out and having somebody run into you. Uh, all the Walmart parking lots I'm ever in seem to have that characteristic of everything's just kind of jammed in there. And then when they get really busy, there you go. But nevertheless... It's a time, I think, when people get kind of weary by today, and uh, they get just kind of tired. They had a day uh, at home, perhaps with family, and sometimes that's not as easy as it sounds or it looks like in the Norman Rockwell paintings. And then they have uh, the next day where traditionally supposed to do shopping or this or that. Sometimes they you work. Sometimes you work part of the day. Sometimes you work very hard if you're working in retail. And then the, by the time the weekend rolls around, it's just people just sort of uh, look like those folks that at the end of the marathon races, you know, the ones that where all of the uh, ATP has gone out of their muscles and they just sort of stagger across the line. Yeah, people sometimes feel a little bit like that. Refresh yourself if that's the case. Don't be afraid to take a little time to relax. And I just think that when I was looking around in the last segment, which I often do, and I know I complain about this a lot, but at all of the material that I have in front of me, and so many of it is not just kind of downer material, but it is confusing material. I mean, you know it's not, a lot of it's not good, but you don't see the direction it's going. Oh, you see some of the direction. I mean, sure, yeah, some of the small, some of the things, but the overall picture, you know, where's, where's this whole sort of macro image of things going? It's, it, and it makes you a little nervous because you don't realize how often in your life that you sort of rely on this idea that you have a, a visualization of what's going on, <laughs> at least some sort of projection into the next year or two, something like that. And I feel like we're losing that. People that are paying attention. Feel, I feel like they're losing that. They realize that, that there is so much uncertainty, near-term uncertainty. And then because of that, when you try and project even four or five years down the road, it's not just hazy, as the old Magic 8-Ball used to say. It seems opaque. makes people uncomfortable. One of the things that sets humans apart, I think, from uh, other critters on the, on the uh, planet, although... Some of the people I know are, or I don't know them, but I read about their behaviors. They are not equal to a lot of the critters on the planet. But nevertheless, in general, one of the things I think that set humans apart is the ability to sort of plan, anticipate. And when the world gets into a place like this, and when our country especially is in a place like this, that ability to plan and anticipate what's going to happen and kind of prepare for it, the foresight that I think we all sort of want to have about our lives begins to get so clouded it makes people uncomfortable and i think people are uncomfortable and nervous of course not particularly optimistic now there's a few i i don't know who they are they're the people apparently who interview with pollsters and say that they think that the economy is going great and joe biden's doing a good job 
you know, that uh, 36%, 30%, whatever they are. I don't understand that. I don't understand. <laughs> That's just too many. I mean, you know, if it was like 15% or something, I'd say, okay, we, we see the unhinged out there. We understand that. That just seems like too many, and, and it bothers me that there are that many people that are willing to go along with whatever the heck is happening here. You don't even have to be able to label it to know that it ain't, it ain't good. It, it makes you a little uneasy, right? But there is another thing we can talk about that we're going to talk a little bit more about Europe and how that sort of is foreshadowing everything for us, as well as contributing to our own problems here. But there was something positive that happened in Europe. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, in Argentina that uh, the election down there put a very populist candidate in there, and, and the left worldwide, really, and I mentioned the president of Mexico, the left worldwide is just grinding their teeth. I, I get out and I look at some of the left websites and so forth, and, of course, what they're saying is, well, they're having a fit. They're basically on their back rolling around screaming. And that's over Argentina. And not only that, but the Netherlands... You know, wooden shoes, dikes, uh, racing on the frozen canals with your skates and uh, so forth. Yeah, the Netherlands has been a pretty liberal place for a couple of decades now. They've had a lot of migration that they haven't had anything to do with trying to figure out how to deal with it. And they've had a lot of back and forth and some, some violence with some of their, against some of their politicians. And this last uh, election, just this week, in the Netherlands, that uh, a fellow who's we've probably heard about before is Gert Wilders. Gert was uh, has been a populist politician there, a conservative populist politician for a while, and taken a lot of abuse. His party uh, won a controlling portion of their parliament. And I remember these parliamentary systems. I mean, you have to have your party has to win a majority, and then you as party leader theoretically step in as the prime minister. Same thing happens in Britain and in Israel, for that matter. And often what happens is you get a big piece of it, but not enough to get a majority, and so then you link up with another party, a smaller one, you cut a deal with them to do certain things, and they vote for your guy, and then that's how that goes. But this looks like that they had a very a very substantial portion of the parliament there in the Netherlands switched over. And the, a lot of the Europeans are really unhappy about it, which is great. Uh, so, so that's a good thing there. And I also had on my notes here that this, you know, the Rainbow Bridge, which I always thought was pretty interesting when I first heard about it on, when did that terrible accident happen? Uh, Wednesday, I guess. Yeah, Wednesday. When the Bentley, speeding 100 miles an hour, uh, ran into a, you know, sort of the the, the custom station there, because that bridge goes near the Niagara Falls between Canada and the United States, and went up in the air, blew up, and of course it wasn't terrorism, and these guys apparently, according to the story, was on, were on their way to a Kiss concert. The whole thing is kind of weird still. I think we need to hear a little more about it. That was a pretty big explosion in that car. And I'm not exactly sure that you can account account for that because of the gas tank, but I don't want to seem too paranoid about it. But I think maybe I read a little more into it because I had just read a story in Maine where they had caught eight Romanians, (laughs) 
eight Romanians sneaking into the country that were, I don't even want to call it on a watch list, but were wanted in various places for being part of a pretty rough and tough gang, you know, criminal organization, and that they would not have been allowed in the United States, and they caught them trying to sneak in from Canada into Maine. I don't know exactly what sort of uh, operation they were hoping to set up in Maine. I'm guessing that's not that was not their final destination. But I read that, and then I, I read this thing right afterwards uh, over Niagara, and you think, what's going on on that border? I mean, is it bad enough that we have things going on like at the southern border? And we do know that there has always been a certain amount of illegal immigration or illegal aliens, border crossings that happen on the northern border. Some of the things that happen up there bother me to think about because we really don't have the ability to stop someone if they want to snowshoe into Montana or something like that. And if you're willing to do stuff like that, you are really someone who wants to get into the country without anybody knowing who you are, and that always bothers me, so... We'll be back. Uh, folks, thanks for sticking with us. Appreciate that on this, uh, as I said, sort of holiday weekend. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying yourself and you're not driving back from someplace in bad weather. It seems to be scattered throughout the country. We appreciate your listenership here, no question about it. I wanted to read something for this segment, too, before I forget about it uh, or misplace it. And Not that I'll forget about it. Uh, a couple of people talked to me about an article in this uh, month's NRA magazines. And I knew this had been set up, but I think it does good to, to highlight us. A couple of months ago, the Biden administration set a office up in the executive branch, supposedly in the White House. I doubt if it actually meets there, but uh, and it's called the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. And the NRA wanted to highlight this, and I think it's worth mentioning to people because it's, of course, a terrible idea. It has nothing to do with preventing gun violence, but it has a lot to do with preventing you having a gun. So I, I thought I'd talk about it a little bit just to let people know. Now, the best thing about it is that Kamala Harris is the uh, head of the new office. You know, Hershey's also the head of uh, artificial intelligence. I assume that was just to get in line to maybe get some. And then this, and then, of course, the... Immigration, and I'm sure there's several other things that she doesn't even know she's the head of. I'm not sure she knows she's the head of those things. Anyway, but the uh, the director is a woman by the name, according to the NRA here, uh, Stephanie Feldman, who they describe as a longtime Biden aide and anti-gun zealot, who for years has made her personal mission to rally the anti-gun left to defeat the NRA and defeat defeat gun manufacturers, defeat them. I don't know. That bothers me a little bit. Is uh, I hate to be this way, but if the whole country was unable to make firearms, it seems to me like there's a lot of problems even outside the private realm that you'd have. Like I don't know, would we be buying our military weapons from Belgium? I mean, <laughs> what's going on? I mean, they're so narrow and wound up, they can't even see the consequences of their actions when it comes to this gun stuff. Part of it's because they they made great progress, and then just recently they've been getting slowed down. A Bauer decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that says that you have to look at 
gun control legislation in the context of the traditions in the United States and of the Constitution. So some of these things where they're trying to ban firearms, some of which have been around for a long time, have been getting struck down by some of these decent judges, of which they're less and less in the federal bench sometimes that are saying, look, what you're doing is you're denying something that goes against the traditional role of self-protection in the United States and the Constitution's guarantee. There was a judge in uh, Oregon who struck, well, who put a permanent injunction on that uh, crazy one that they had up there that had to do with, you couldn't have any more than a 10-round magazine and you had to have a license to purchase a firearm. I mean, we all know that's, I mean, that's not a bridge too far. That's absolutely a bridge in another country. And he put an injunction against that. Now, the people voted for that, if you can imagine that. But people vote for things, apparently, that are bad for them all the time. So uh, I don't know what they're thinking. Well, they don't know. They don't understand it. They, they listen to the propaganda. They're, they haven't been raised around firearms. They don't understand them. They just, they're afraid of everything. Look, if, if you live in some of these places, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, New York, and you're a halfway, and I would say halfway normal person, because if you were a fully normal person, you would understand that you needed to have your Second Amendment rights and you needed to have the ability to stand up for yourself and not have to rely on the state for everything. But nevertheless, even if you're just kind of half involved in all this stuff, you're scared. And rightly so. You do not live in a safe environment. Not only are you unsafe, as we like to say, because of the crime that could be committed against you, but you are further victimized by the fact that there's nothing that's going to happen about it. I mean, in most of these places, the person who perpetrates that is going to just wander out the back end of the courthouse the same day. That is very frightening if you're stuck in one of these places. You're told that the reason there's so much violence is because of firearms and not because of policy. Now, you know the policies are bad, but then the idea, well, if they didn't have the firearms, maybe they... and. People are just a little hysterical about it. So I give them their due. They're wrong about how to solve these problems and clearly that getting rid of firearms or somehow restricting the magazine capacity. I mean, I've said this many times before. We have had 1911 style semi-automatic pistols in the United States and in the hands of civilians since 1908, probably. Uh, and there was various other forms before that. It was only with Broomtail Mauser and all that stuff, but that wasn't so prevalent here. But those have been around for a long time. Now, in the ones that hold seven or eight rounds, the magazine swaps out pretty darn fast. So people could change those. Yeah, is it as fast as a magazine has 30 in it? No. But it's pretty close. And if someone has practiced just a little bit, they can get those magazines changed out. The point being, why did we not have any of these mass shootings or any of this crazy violence before? 
people could people could have gotten a lot of rounds out there with the firearms that was available to them then. They didn't do it. Why not ask that question? Why not ask yourself, what's changed about us that people feel free to do this or are encouraged to do this or are crazy enough to do whatever the case may be? What is it? It isn't because we have some new special thing because it looks like a black rifle and everybody decided, you know, I never thought about committing a crime before, but then I saw that black rifle and man, I knew, no. And by sort of fetishizing ARs and things like that, you attract the nuts to them. When you constantly say that that's some sort of evil thing, despite the fact that, you know, variations of uh, the AR platform and the M4 are the most popular rifle in America today. When you say that it's some some kind of evil talisman in order to get rid of it out of law-abiding hands, you attract crazy people to it. I don't know why they can't see that. You see that if you if you don't have any context and you live in some place where you're afraid all the time, and then you're being told that if you just do something about guns, that somehow you'll be safer. Now, I think some people are waking up to the fact that even guns doesn't matter. I mean, there seems to be a lot of knife attacks in some of these cities. There's a lot of really violent uh, beatdowns of people. There's obviously some other tribal components to this. I mean, look at the poor anti-Semitic stuff that's going on. Uh, it's a mess, and it's not it's not guns. But anyway, so this Office of Gun Violence Prevention. I would like to have an Office of Person Violence Prevention. Wouldn't that be good? The guns are pretty easy to stop being violent. You know how I stop mine? I lock them up. That's right. I lock them up. Though those things can't get out and do anything violent when I'm not looking. It's ridiculous. But anyway, the assistant director is an interesting person for this uh, particular White House initiative. The deputy director, according to the NRA, is Robert Wilcox, who prior to taking this position was a paid was paid by Michael Bloomberg's Every Town for Gun Safety. Uh, as an anti-gun lobbyist, he pushed for banning semi-automatic rifles banning private gun transfers, punishing law-abiding gun shops for acts of criminals, and limiting the capacity of magazines used in self-defense firearms. So, he seems fair. <laughs> Once again, these guys are going to are going to suggest nothing about what's the problem with violence. See, you could just take a marker and just mark out violence in this and just say gun that's all that's all they care about. They don't have any interest in the underlying problems that make people violent. Mental health problems, drug problems, government policies. Some of these government policies create these other problems. Fail policies in many of these cities that create whole sections of municipalities that have very poor education provided to them are just left to do nothing with them except politicize them to tell them they need to vote for the right party and then leave them where they're at until the folks are just desperate and disconnected from the rest of society. They lose empathy with people outside of of their confines, and you get violence. And 
when you get hopelessness like some of these folks have, or the only thing they see is a way like this, this is what happens. And these government policies we have have fostered that. But nevertheless, this this group is just they're just all about gun. They're not they're not trying to prevent violence. They just want to just pass gun legislation. That's all it that's all it is. It's the office of the president to force gun legislation. So keep our eye on that. There's so many things to keep your eye on these days. I also wanted to bring up that if you had a chance to kind of follow what was going on last week and the week before this one with China and Biden, the sense in the sense that he was there, I'm not sure he was cognizant about anything. Uh, he's gotten to the point where he can't even read the index cards they give him. We see him squinting wildly towards the giant letters on the teleprompter, and he still can't follow them. And the second he goes off of it, who knows what he's going to say. And when he wanders out into the crowd and talks to people, well, I mean, it just depends. It's, it's, I don't think it's ever been good. But anyway, we're seeing a situation in the world. This goes back to what I spoke about in the last segment, I think, about why people feel so uneasy. And it's because not only is the United States feeling out of control, we've had like 8 million illegal aliens come across the border since 2021. Think about that. 8 million. Most of them, we have no idea where they're at. Many of them, we don't have any idea who they are or where they actually came from or what the plan is from them. They're just gone. Sort of like a magic trick. They just disappear into the into the firmament of the country. There's so many reasons that cannot be good that you can almost not list them. I mean, first of all, we have a tremendous amount of folks that came into this country, and the same thing in Europe, that are not really the labor force we're looking for. And so even if they want to work, let's say, they, they, they don't have education, most of them. They have no financial resources when they come here. Their skills are usually not something that most of our society is moving towards. So where are they going to end up? Where are they going to end up in the safety net, as we call it? Not safe for most of us because we're paying for it, but yeah. And how do we pay for that? Well, it used to be we could pay for some of this stuff by our productivity, but that seems to have fallen by the wayside. We now have uh, are generating a national debt that's larger than our gross domestic product. And we all know that if you know somebody and they're spending more than they make, that usually doesn't go on very long. And it can't go on very long for countries. We're $33 trillion in debt. All right. And that's, and that's just not something that we just talk about and goes away because it's starting to affect a lot of things. The interest rate we pay on that debt is going up so that we're paying more and more of what we do produce towards servicing the debt. They call it servicing the debt. Yeah. Servicing it. They're not really paying it down. And Biden will come out and say, well, I lowered the debt. No, you didn't. You, we, we came back down from the terrifically 
unwell, uh, unrealistic spending that took place during pa- the pandemic time, the COVID stuff, which, by the way, people still have some of that money. And you're messing with the numbers to make it look like things went down. No, that was just ridiculous. And now it's become too down from ridiculous to unsupportable. And that's where we are. I, I don't know what, how we're going to accommodate all of these people in the United States right now. Because we're so divided, right? We're divided by political lines, racial lines. It's just a whole series of different tribes out there. And everyone's divided along <laughs> along divisions that we didn't even think about in the past. And now not only do they exist, but they are hard and fast, and there is a real snapback response when people cross over those those lines now from one tribal group to another. There is growing tension, and it's it's all stoked by progressive policies who, who took the divide-and-conquer idea and applied it to their own country. It's short-term political gain. It's the idea that you convince a group of people that they're being oppressed by another group, hopefully smaller, and that if they will support you, the oppressed group now, or the supposedly oppressed group, that you will fix everything and you'll fight off these bad people. That's been going on for a long time. But now, and like I've said here many times before, it's kicked up like five notches. It's no longer that they have bad ideas and it's those ideas are going to harm you. It's that they are evil people who want bad things to happen to you and will try and protect you from them. When that's the story you're telling people, and they don't know any better, they begin to format ideas and behaviors against the people who have been told that are the oppressors that are not healthy and create eventually, I don't know, the kind of civil discord that does not allow nations to hang together for very long. I don't know how much longer the progressives, progressive Democrats, regular Democrats now, uh, can keep going to that well before the well blows up. I know that's not a great metaphor, but, I mean, that's kind of the way I feel about it. It's just, you know, you can't keep doing the same thing and stoking more and more pressure, creating more pressure in society and trying to use that to your own benefit until finally the pressure gets so great that it it explodes in a way that you can't control. And this is what's going to happen if we continue down this road. We are engaging forces in society that once they get to a certain point are very difficult to pull back. And it, and they're not even new. I mean, some of these sort of political tricks have been done for 2,000 years. And eventually, if they're done very much, they always end up the same way. And it's not a pretty picture. But it is the desire of people to hold on to power, even for a short period of time, not caring what happens in the longer version. And one of the reasons they don't care is they have sculpted the landscape such that they are not going to be held to 
the consequences of their their actions. At least they think. Eventually, you do things bad enough to where even your walled estate in Malibu becomes a dangerous place to be or whatever, but they don't seem to see that. And here we are. So not to drag everybody down on a uh, on a weekend after a holiday, but we've got our work cut out for us. And I mean, we're, and we're, we're kind of alone. Remember Mark Stein wrote a great book called America Alone, I think, in 2012. Predicting a lot of this stuff. And in fact, it's true. I mean, what do you have? You have the, uh, Europe is just almost helpless now. They gave up everything in terms of their own defense and, and whatnot and turned it over to the United States. These characters, Trump couldn't even get them to kick in to their 2% of their gross domestic product to their own defense. How long does that take you people on the outside looking in to say, look, these guys are, you know, they're like a, like a, a fragile egg here. You know, we give them a little wrap and they're going to crack. So you see the Ukraine, you see China flying, flying their, uh, fighters against, a, you know, alongside our aircraft dangerously drive, dragging their, uh, Navy back and forth across, uh, the, uh, Strait of Taiwan, uh, just one bellicose thing after another because they see that. We could no longer protect everybody in the world without some help. And they don't seem to want to help. They somehow think that it'll just be okay. We'll somehow take care of it. Part of that I put down to the fact that Europe is, I mean, their population is shrinking. I mean, it's happening. Uh, I think they have about 1.5 uh, birth rate over there, which is less than the rate of replacement. In other words, that the population is naturally shrinking. And some of these countries have 20% of their population was born someplace else. California is about like that, too. And they're not interested in most of these countries in terms of assimilation. And they come from, from nations that are hostile to the places that these folks are going. And they're not really refugees in the sense that, yeah, I mean, you live a lot better in Germany or France than you did in Syria or parts of Lebanon. Instead of that being the issue, you're not, a, you're not a refugee of the war. There's no war there. I mean, it's a terrible place to live, but it's your place to live. Clean up your own house, for gosh sakes. Don't just come to ours and, uh, you know, bringing the problems that you've had in the other countries with you. We can help out, but we can't just have a tidal wave come in because eventually it'll get to where it's not helpful for anybody. And we can't tell who the good guys are and if there's bad guys in there. Come on, who does that? We can solve this, but we have to get engaged now, certainly by 2024. Have a great week.